Hi there, and welcome to the Oompal.com podcast. I'm Oli, and for this episode, it is my pleasure to bring to you a chat with Alex Florov of Florov Pipes. You can view Alex's site at www.florovpipes.com. That's F-L-O-R-O-V pipes.com. I met Alex a few years back at one of the yearly Chicago pipe shows. I was taking the pipe making course, and he came in to offer guidance. One thing I noticed was the pipe he was puffing on. It was a longish, slender, and petite pipe that was really unique. A few days later, I saw his work and noticed the same elegance and intricate detail in each piece. Really amazing work. The following podcast is made possible by Pipe Studs Consignment Shop. First, you'll want to go to pipestud.com. While you're there, you'll be able to see what kinds of tobaccos Mr. Steve Fallon, a.k.a. Pipe Stud, has on consignment. This is a great place to find blends no longer on the market. Got some old tins or unopened pouches to sell? Email him at pipestud at aol.com and let him know what you have. But wait, there's more. I don't know about you, but I love estate pipes. Pipe Stud has an eBay store that is chock full of great finds all the time. Here's a quick, easy way to get there. Go to oompal.com, click on Links, then click on Pipe Stud's Consignment Pipe Shop. Don't forget to sign up for his newsletter, but I'm going to warn you right now, the practice of getting great deals through Pipe Stud is highly addicting. Give it a shot. You will love doing business with him. I know I do. The following podcast was recorded on December 29th, 2008. Sit back, grab a pipe, and stay a while. I hope you enjoy. On the line with us today, we have Alex Florov of Florov Pipes. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Now, Alex, you were born and raised in Moscow, and you worked in a museum where you restored antique furniture. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing, but also about what it was like um, to work in that museum and how you got to um, kind of start off your career that way. Well, that's what was kind of a weird thing, as a matter of fact. Uh, officially, I have a medical education and uh, almost like certified nurse thing. Uh, really? But, wow. I didn't know uh, that. Yeah. Well, only a few people know that, as a matter of fact. I'm not pursuing career in medicine anymore, so it's, you know, like a uh, very distant path. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the thing is, uh, I met a few interesting guys at the Plastic Models Club, uh, which I was involved in uh, making little uh, airplanes and scales since I was uh, seven or so. Mm-hmm. And uh, There was a bunch of very interesting people at that club with all different occupations, you know, and the only one thing which connected us all was the patient for scale modeling. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I switched from a plastic models to scratch build models pretty much early in my life since two things uh, which always bother me. I never find the kit which was good enough. And uh, I never find a lot of airplanes I want to have in my collection as a kit. Mm-hmm. I was literally forced to use the drawings and uh, to make my own models out of wood or whatever materials was available. And uh, some guys at the club connected me to, uh, by that time, there was an old guy. Uh, he also was uh, involved in modeling, and he also was the head restorer at that museum. So basically, and, uh, basically uh, you, couldn't, 
you couldn't find the the kits that really appealed to you, so you decided you wanted to start making your own. Yeah, I, I couldn't find the kits uh, which is accurate enough, and uh, uh, the story goes actually even now with all of those uh, you know famous Japanese makers, famous American makers, they still not accurate enough. Wow, really. Uh, well, that, that's uh, pretty much true. So it's uh, like different subject, but uh, if you take an interior, most of the kits have just a seat floor and a little bit of control panel, but the uh, rest of the small detailing is missing. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as an example, in uh, 148 scale F16, I had about 150 parts in a seat alone. Wow. So that's like an example of what's a good model look like apart from just, you know, straight from the box. Right. Wow. wow. So I, well, I got to imitate all the plumbing, uh, some electrical wires, which is still visible in that thing, and not to mention like belts, buckles, and all that stuff. That's so amazing. it was all the separate parts. And that applied to all over the plane. I mean, basically, it's like uh, each and every element you can take and you will find uh, some poor detailing. So mm-hmm. for me, it was easier to take a piece of wood and shape it to the you know, shape I need. Wood, plastic, metal, whatever uh, whatever's suitable, you know. Mm-hmm. So that, that was uh, basically my connection to uh, uh, real serious woodworking. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, I was kind of like between two uh, hobbies doing those things. And uh, uh, I also fell in love uh, do wood, you know. So it's, uh, you know, for me, it was between two fires. I, I just don't know which one is better. Right. So and that's how, that's how I learned to work with wood. And it actually uh, gave me a lot of uh, advantage when I come to the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, because my first job was as a cabinet maker for about two years. And uh, that was not like a design cabinet maker. I was doing uh, mostly kitchens, but like real high-end kitchens. But still, it's not like design furniture. Right. So, and after that, I become a model maker for a company who was subcontractor for Revell Monogram, which is pretty much famous plastic model company worldwide. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, we've been doing mostly cars for the master models of cars and uh, some other stuff. Uh, also, our company work actually with all of the American plastic models company. We did some jobs for Ertel and for Lindbergh. Mm-hmm. So that, that was like five years when I apply my skills as a woodworker because most of the models was made out of wood. And uh, kind of haunted too, you know, to bring it to perfection. And uh, th- that's the uh, whole background, how I come to wood, uh, to work with wood. So once, uh, after the museum work that you did, restoring furniture in Moscow, once you came over to the States, you worked as a cabinet maker. And then from a cabinet maker, you started doing, um, you started working with model companies, right? Absolutely. And I still work with the model companies since then. It's a, it's a fun work. It's always something different, you know. It's not like a routine. You're doing the same thing every day. It's uh, projects change, and uh, you know, everything seems like more fun than just doing the same thing every day for life, you know. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet it is uh, pretty interesting and pretty challenging. Always getting different different kinds of projects headed your way. What are you working on right now? Yeah. Well, uh, right now I work in an industrial prototype company. Would do. Not toys. I used to work in a toy company as well. 
uh, but we're doing mostly prototypes like cell phones, computer cases, uh, TVs, uh, fitness equipment. We did some aircraft seats. I mean, totally like off-the-wall objects. Uh, whatever people need the model of, we're doing it, you know. And uh, we're using uh, like all the actual materials, paints, uh, uh, all the graphics are on, you know. So you cannot uh, put apart real phone from the fake one. Wow. So that that's a lot of fun too. It's a little bit more challenging because it's uh, you know in a large scale, so it's not enlarged or smaller. Sometimes actually it's a large. Uh, once we did a coffee maker for I don't know some design show, it was about ten times larger than a life one. Oh no kidding! Interesting. Yeah, I probably can sit in that pot if I wish no to. No kidding. You know? <laughs> so I mean, sometimes we do a real odd job. Yeah. So, but uh-huh. it's still fun. I, I like doing it. So. Uh-huh. That is very so For cool. me, it's like uh, the best job in the world, you know. What a very interesting job. And then, not to mention, you're an incredible pipe maker when you come home, right? Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's how I spend my uh, available time. Uh, well, at winter, it's a little bit challenging for me. It's a skiing season, and all my family is skiers. So it's... Oh, really? Uh, yeah, right now I'm on the hot spot. Yeah. Because <laughs> my, my wife is a ski instructor, my kids, both of my kids on the racing team, and uh, I'm the only one who is not hooked up officially with the ski, but I'm still skiing, like, as much as I can. Oh, wow. Yeah, everybody's into skiing, huh? Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a big skier family. Now, is that something you've you've been doing for quite some time? Your whole family's been involved in skiing for quite a while. Uh, uh, downhill skiing, the whole family was involved. Uh, both of my kids started to ski probably at the age of three or so. How old are your kids? And, uh, seven and nine. Two boys, boy and a girl. Girls, two girls. Two girls. Yep. Seven. And I'm nine a jeweler kids. in kit making. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, everybody called me that. Uh, everybody who knows me, two girls in a row is kind of hard. <laughs> but uh, well, it's happened. Yeah. So I'm pretty much happy about it. Back in Russia, I was uh, heavily involved in the cross-country skiing for about since I was 12 up to 18. So it's six, maybe seven years. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, racing for a city team for a while. But uh, then I just, uh, you know, had no time for that. It's, uh, you know, when you're a kid, it's uh, cool to be in a team and everything. But when you grow up and start to make your own living, uh, you're kind of out of uh, available time for that. Mm-hmm. So after I served in the uh, Russian army, which is a mandatory over there, so I spent two years there basically doing nothing, free labor. And uh, then I come back and I just uh, cannot imagine myself spending five days a week at the training sessions, you know. Yeah. It's a little bit too harsh, and uh, I just switched off of that stuff. And uh, when we come to U.S., basically we switch to downhill skiing, which is a little bit more fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife become an instructor, and uh, now it's like whole family thing. Great. Very cool. And you're in a good spot for it. You're up there in Chicago, right? Uh, Yep. So you're not far uh, from we, we have a hill about 20 minutes uh, driving distance from our house. Oh, that's not bad That's at all. where my wife uh, teaches, so it's pretty much cool. I'm uh, on the border between Illinois and Wisconsin, to be more precise. Okay. Wow. So Wisconsin is closer to me than Chicago. Okay, wow. Yeah, you're not, so far, you're not far from the slopes at all. Very cool. 
Now tell me something. Yeah. In the uh, in the spring of two thousand four, your father in law dared you to do something. Tell me about that dare that that he dared you. Oh, uh, that, that that was uh, actually to make a long story shorter. Uh, I used to smoke pipe back in Russia, and uh, well, back then I didn't know a good pipe from the bad pipe. I was uh, smoking whatever I like. Uh, when I come here, I sort of educate myself thanks to the internet, and uh, I had a dilemma. The pipes I like, I cannot afford, and the pipes I don't like, I don't want to buy. Yeah. And uh, that was for quite a few years I was smoking cigarettes and kind of didn't bother myself. Uh, and then uh, my father-in-law came in, and he's a pipe smoker, and uh, he had a few pipes with him, and uh, I kind of borrowed it. Uh, smoke it for a while and understand it's much better than cigarettes. And uh, I just asked him where he's buying his pipes. And he has some briars made in Turkey, but actually some decent ones. And uh, he told me, why are you asking? Just make yourself a pipe. And that was like, you know, that little light bulb above the head. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just never thought about it. Yeah. So I, I go to the Internet. Thanks again for the Internet. And I try to pull out all the uh, available materials uh, about pipe making. And uh, it's not much, actually. Even now, it's not much uh, information there. But I find out some places where I can get a briar. I find uh, some uh, molded mouse pieces I can fit in. And uh, that's how it all started. My first two pipes was made out of uh, pre-drilled blocks. Mm-hmm. And after that, I realized uh, that working with a pre-drilled box, it's not a, not a lot of fun because I'm limited by the somebody else's engineering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also started to think about uh, what's going inside the pipe. Since I was pretty much skilled in, in flying uh, models too, uh, I knew a little bit about air and how it moves through the tubes or through the open things. Yeah. And uh, I start to ask people, thanks God, I find the Chicago Pipe Collectors Club, which was a tremendous, uh, I don't even know the word, the right word for that, it was huge help. Yeah. That was, that was like that huge leap for the pipe maker. Really? When I joined the club, uh, uh, I meet people like Frank Burla, I meet people like uh, Rex Pogenpol, mm-hmm. which is like everybody knows him. Uh well, it's like a whole long list of people I met, and they connect me to uh, people like Tony Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I go to my first Chicago show, uh, Frank Burlo, uh, Frank Burlo bring Bunor to my table, and we had a very good conversation, and he teach me a lot about, uh, you know, small things which you not uh, see on the outside uh, as you look at the pipe, but it's important because uh, it's supposed to work as a pipe. So that's like two sides of every pipe, the engineering and uh, outside appearance. Yeah. So And uh, that was like a uh, uh, downhill uh, amount of information just dumped on me, you know, how to do things right, what to look at. Uh, uh, they connect me with Mimo, who is my main briar supplier even now and probably going to be for years because his stuff is the best. Yeah. And... That's how the whole thing has happened. Uh, skill-wise, uh, basically, I learned the stuff I didn't know about uh, mouthpiece, what's inside the mouthpiece, because in my opinion, it's a very important element. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, if you do mouthpiece wrong, the whole pipe doesn't matter how good it is. Mm-hmm. It may be smoked wet, it can gargle, it can do all crazy stuff, 
only because of the mouthpiece. Yeah. So uh, for me, that was a dark territory. I didn't know anything about it. So uh, that's what I tried to study the most at the beginning, uh, because uh, literally I can carve any shape I like out of any kind of wood. And uh, briar actually is very hard wood. Yeah. So it's a little bit different uh, techniques involved, but I'm still using my wood carving tools, you know, like hand chisels. Uh, I knew a lot of people use the, you know, shaping wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I almost not use a shaping wheel. You know, I, I heard uh, that you use chisels. Tell me about that. Well, a chisel is probably the most universal uh, wood carving tool we can find. Uh, they come in all sizes and shapes, uh, some of them real odd-looking ones, like inverted spoons, for example. If you want to reach uh, real deep undercuts, uh, as an example, uh, if you see my pierced pipes, mm-hmm. uh, the bamboo connection inside the complete ring of my pipes is real hard to reach areas with all kinds of tools. So basically, inverted spoons, that's uh, the only way to how to reach those areas and carve it as clean as possible and then just a little bit of sanding and it's next to polish. Wow. Uh, straight chisel, uh, like one inch wide straight chisel, that's the most useful tool because I can do 90% of pipe using just the chisel. And uh, another benefit of chisels, uh, when you work on a sanding disc, you got to use water or anything else to bring up the grains and see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. With the chisels, I don't need to do that. I see grains right away because uh, my tools are polished. When mm-hmm. I hunt my tools, they're literally polished, and uh, the indication, they sharp enough. If they can shave my hair from my hand, yeah. that's sharp. If they're not shaving, it's not sharp enough. I got to resharpen it. So working with that is quite dangerous. If you poke yourself, you can poke yourself through, you know. So do you sharpen those on a grinding on a grinding stone, or do you? Have uh, uh, that's the whole process. I have a, a vertical whetstone, which is a very slow rotating wheel, uh, half of it submerged in water. It's like a special tool for aged sharpening aged tools. Uh, the reason I'm using that tool because uh, it will never burn my steel. If steel has, you know, that uh, little coloring kind of age, mm-hmm. that means you overheat it, and the steel in that area becomes soft. So it will not hold the age. That oh. thing you got to avoid at any cost. Okay. So uh, that's why I have a slow wet wheel to put initial uh, wedge on a chisel. It create nice angle, but it's not sharp enough yet. It's more like a saw when you look at the age. Uh-huh. And then uh, I have a few hunting stones. I start with a 600 grit uh, diamond stone to finalize the cutting edge, and I finish it with uh, uh, either Japanese whetstones, it's just the name of that thing. I think it's some sort of marble or something. Real, real fine hunting stones. Uh, when you work on those, you need a lot of water, or it will clog the stone itself. And the tools looks next to polish after that. And the final process is I use a natural, uh, natural leather, put a little bit of polishing compound on it, and hunt it by hand like you do with a straight razor. Uh-huh. That's the same finish as a straight razor. That's why it's actually shaving when you try it on the skin. Wow. Uh, well, I almost had a bet with a friend of mine I can shave with my freshly sharpened chisel. <laughs> well, he didn't go for it. Probably I will cut myself a few times, but 
<laughs> technically, I can do that. Wow. So I probably would never challenge, uh, never dare anybody to bet like that, but, well, that's a uh, general idea of uh, sharpened tools. And uh, for me, it's, uh, it's like a natural attachment to my hand. I guess you've been with chisels for a long time, huh? Uh, yes, I've been working with chisels probably since I was 12 or so. Wow. Yeah. And obviously, at that age, I had only like few simple chisels, and uh, they were not the best in the world. And uh, now I mostly work with the German-made chisels, uh, hand-hammered. And, uh, well, uh, they all come from a city called Salinger, and uh, people who were involved in the culinary business, they knew the best knives come from there. Mm-hmm. So that's a German city which specialized in a good steel for cutting tools. Uh, I cannot afford Japanese chisels. Oh, yeah. Those things the best in the world, but they like $800 a piece. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, and that's one-inch wide straight chisel. Yeah. I, I look at them. Uh, I, I have a friend who is uh, involved in designer furniture, and he does incredible stuff. So he showed me some of those chisels. I tried them. I love them, but I just cannot afford them. And I don't think I need them for what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, so, but, obviously uh, not. I think your work is so amazing. Let's talk about your work for a little bit. It's so very organic. Um, tell me about your inspirations. Uh, well, uh, most of my inspirations come from my backyard. I have a few uh, areas with the flowers. I collect some lilies. I collect different irises. Uh, I collect some amaralysis. Uh, I just like them as the flowers. I just like to spend time in my backyard. And uh, I uh, literally transfer some of those shapes into my pipes, uh, especially the color lilies. I'm absolutely nuts about those flowers. And uh, I'm, uh, the reason I'm doing organic, uh, I just uh, like it organic. I like the natural lines. Uh, I, I work with the briar, which is a natural material. It grew in the earth, you know, it's a mother, uh, mother Earth creation, and I just try to keep it this way. You know, I'm not trying to do any geometric forms out of uh, organic material. Uh-huh. And uh, actually, all the materials I use on my pipe, uh, use on my pipes, they kind of grow this way or another. Uh, I use for decoration either some exotic woods or ivory, which is also a natural product. Mm-hmm. And the ebonite itself is also a natural product because it's basically a latex. It's a hard rubber. Right. So uh, I just try to keep everything organic because uh, I just like the flow of those lines. You know, when, uh, when you feel the pipe in your hand and it's organic shape, it feels natural to hold it. And in my understanding, pipe is not just a utility tool to consume tobacco. It's a sort of life companion. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be good. It's got to be, uh, you know, feel like you can cuddle the thing instead of just put it on a shelf. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you start working on a pipe, tell me how you start that. Do you start by making sketches on paper or do you get uh, right into the wood or how does that work? Uh, it's a 50-50 thing. It's uh, real hard to say exactly how it's working. Sometimes I start with a block. If I see the block with some interesting grains on it, and sometimes idea just struck me right there on the spot, I can take a pencil and just draw it right on the block. 
and uh, start from that point. Uh, sometimes uh, I just drew a lot of sketches on the paper, and uh, mostly uh, I use the tissue paper. I don't know why I just like the. I just like to use a tissue paper, so my workshop full of it. And uh, some shapes, like my pierced color lily, it's uh, it's a long line of uh, predecessing pipes, which brings me to that shape that was like a sort of uh, evolution of uh, shapes. Uh, some shapes, they just appear, you know, somehow I just sit down, draw some stuff, and uh, draw some lines, and I see if I combine those lines in that order, it can make a good pipe, at least in my opinion. And uh, uh, most of the shapes I do, that the shapes I like. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to do pipes which I, I would buy personally if, I, if I'll be in the shoes of a buyer, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, and uh, my hand, that's my testing tool. So if it fits nice in my hand, probably it will feel nice on somebody else too. Mm -hmm. so, most and, most uh, of these inspirations it, are coming uh, not just from your backyard, but, but from ideas and shapes that, that you have when you're sitting down in your studio. Yeah, absolutely. And a matter of fact, uh, uh, another line of my inspirations, that's aquatic life. You know, like fishes, seals, whales. Everything which swims in the ocean, basically. And the uh, reason for that, I always have a discovery channel on. Yeah. Either well, discovery channel, animal channel, or science channel. Yeah. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't watch a lot of movies. I just basically put some uh, educational programming, and it's like killing two birds at the same time. I yeah. can work, and I can uh, get some interesting information. So, and uh, th that's another uh, line of inspiration, that's uh, aquatic lines. Uh, I didn't start that gig, you know, it's uh, Japanese and Danes, uh, they start to move in uh, that direction, and I just like the organic shapes, and uh, what can be more organic than a whale? Yeah. You know, the way how they move, and uh, uh, what I try to do in my pipes, I, I want to make not a static object, I want to make the object which actually shows the dynamic of that object. So it's it's always on a move, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's it, it's like a good uh, photography, you know, when uh, somebody make a picture of the whale. If it's just a static whale on on top of the water, it's not interesting picture. So it's gotta be jumping whale or uh, you know beating tail over the water. So it's gotta be some movement in it. Yeah, some kind so, of dynamic. And, dynamic. Yeah, and that, that's what I'm trying to put in my pipes. Uh, mm -hmm. Just you know, in 3D object instead of flat photography. So while we're talking about dynamic objects, I'm I'm on your site right now, and I'm looking at the Tulip Pierced by Artist brush. And wow, what a piece this is. Tell me a little bit about the idea behind this. Uh, well, uh, the idea is pretty much clear, actually. Uh, the idea of Pierced Pipe comes from Kei Goto. I never tried to conceal it from anybody. It's not my idea. The idea belongs to Kei Goto. He was the first one to do it. And uh, there is a little funny story about it. Uh, I saw the first uh, Goto Spike on uh, Pierre Wilho website. Mm -hmm. And that was the first uh, pierced uh, blowfish. Mm -hmm. And I've been waiting for the second pipe from the same maker, and I was quite sure he's going to complete the ring. You know, the tail toward the, toward the ball on top. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he came out with the second pipe, which was even more open than the first one, I started to scratch my back, and, you know, the old American saying, if you want to do something, you got to do yourself. 
Yeah. And at that time, I was, uh, you know, in the beginning of my career, and I never did anything like that before. And my experience with the bamboo pipes was probably down to two or three pipes, and obviously not pierced ones. Uh, it took me a while to figure out how to assemble that, you know, pretty much complicated engineering pipe. Yeah. And uh, I just made uh, the first one uh, for a uh, 65th anniversary set of Smoker's Haven. Mm-hmm. And uh, Primo had that pipe for uh, quite a while. It was recently sold, but that's the very first pierced pipe I ever made. And... Uh, so far, in whole my career, I made six of those pipes. And uh, the last one was uh, almost the same as on my uh, website. Uh, the difference was it was with a black bamboo and uh, ivory set teardrops on each knuckle. And I think it was the best pierce pipe I made ever. Wow. I'm pretty much sure that's... Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if I can do better than that. Do you have any uh, pictures of that one? Uh, it's uh, on the Neil uh, Archeron website. Okay. That pipe belongs to him. Okay. Uh, I do have a pictures, but not on the website. I'm a real slab with my website. I didn't update it for about two years now. So most of the pipes there, they the oldest pipes on my website, it's 2006, well, I think. Speaking of your website, um, it's beautiful. And... Um, you know, back before I ever thought about doing a podcast, um, I stumbled upon your website and I was absolutely blown away at your artistry. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've never seen anything quite like this. This guy is incredible. And I, I grabbed my wife. I said, honey, look at this. Look at, can you believe this stuff? And it's, it's such a pleasure to actually have met you at the Chicago show this past year and to be, um, talking with you, interviewing you right now, and it's just so bizarre to me because, you know, it was a couple years back, it, you know, here I stumble across this site, it's like, wow, look, this is so incredible, and it's just, it's uh, it's such a pleasure to actually have met you and uh, and be able to talk with you, so it's, it's that was a oh, very, uh, a very neat um, experience and, and coincidence. Thank you very much, but actually the pleasure is all mine because I'm, uh, I always like to meet people who are patient about pipes, uh, who think about pipes more than just a utility tool to smoke tobacco, you know. Mm-hmm. Because a, a lot of people are this way, and uh, I'm, I'm participating on uh, some English-speaking forums, and uh, I, I'm always on the Russian-speaking pipe forum. Uh, a lot of people think about pipes as a utility tool and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, pipe is much more than that. It's, uh, for me, actually, it's a media to express myself to start with. Because that's my way to express what's inside my head and what I'd like to do. But uh, uh, there is a lot of people who understand pipe as the object of art. And uh, th- that's what it is for me. A lot of people trying to prove me back it's not an art. Well, it's real hard to say uh, because there is no true description of what is art. Yeah. And uh, basically, uh, there is a lot of pipes which I consider to be a high art. You know, like pipes of Tokotomi or Keigoto or Teddy or Bunord. I mean, I, I can go with that list uh, forever. Yeah. Because there is a lot of talented pipe makers in the world. And uh, uh, for me, basically, they show the way 
what can be done with the briar. Uh, like one of the revolution in my mind happened uh, two years ago uh, when I saw few pipes by Tokutomi. And uh, at the same year, Teddy brings uh, his famous uh, whales with the uh, with the rough plateau top on the side of the pipe, just you know, underline the shape. And that was like open Pandora's box. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, I'm not claiming I came out with all of those ideas. I mostly, you know, watch from the side and think what what can be done with that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not matured enough yet, probably, for uh, to come out with absolutely new idea on my own, and I'm pretty much open about it. You know, I'm I'm just learning. I'm still in the process of learning and getting some new information. Because mm-hmm. uh, making pipes, it's not a rocket science, but it's probably next to it. Yeah. Because it's 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 not only three holes in a piece of wood, like yeah. a lot of people try to tell. Yeah. So it's uh, there is much more involved in it, and uh, uh, the more I'm doing it, uh, the more I understand I don't know. So it's uh, that that's a very exciting world. Uh, plus, on top of it, uh, another one of my experience, which uh, I knew a lot of people share with me, when they come to the pipe show, it's like a different planet. It's absolutely different people. It's open-minded people who have something in common. But the thing is, uh, the talks at the pipe shows, they're not only about pipes. They're about literally everything in this life. But by some miracle, people understand each other. They listen to each other. You know, in the real world, it's never happened. Yeah, pipes uh, definitely bring us together in, in some crazy ways, especially at the show. It's it's really a wonderful thing, isn't it? Yeah, that that's what I'm trying to explain. My English probably was a little bit too poor for that. No, no, but, uh, uh, but the the feeling is uh, like you come to a different planet, like you come to the dream world when everything is fine. You know, everybody uh, try to understand you, even if you, you know, not good with explanations. But that's like uh, all friendly world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, that's why that's what I enjoy the most in the pipe world. You know, some people have. Uh, uh, sometimes arguing, you know, about uh, different subjects, but in the end, they never start to fight. They come to the conclusion, you know. So they they, they do come to some results, yeah. which never happened in the real world outside of the pipe world. You know, I, I think the lesson here is everyone should smoke pipes. Don't you agree? <laughs> well, yeah, I absolutely agree. Plus, uh, pipe smoking uh, compared to, let's say, cigarette smoker. Pipe smoking is a, is a ritual, you know. You prepare the pipe, you start the tobacco, it takes much longer time than smoke a cigarette. So people sort of slow down and they have a time to think. You know, that's probably what set us apart from a cigarette smokers Absolutely. or non-smokers at all. It's you know, we, we have the time to meditate, we have the time to think about stuff around us. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a way of life for me to smoke the pipe. Mm-hmm. It's not just you know consuming tobacco. Absolutely, absolutely. Plus, the tobacco world is endless itself, so there is always something new to try. That's another exci- excited excitement part about pipe smoking. I'm personally addicted to some vintage tobaccos, and uh, for me, it's like when I get a. Uh, new tin, which I never tried before, but that tin is like 20 years old, and a lot of my friends recommend me. For me, it's like a new discovery. I feel like Columbus, you know? 
So it's, yeah. It's hard to, 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 to describe those feelings, emotions, probably the hardest things to describe in this life, but that's what, uh, that's what happens with me when I have a unknown for me tobacco. Tell so me, it's, uh, it's all together. Tell me about your nomenclature and how, uh, how that works with your pipes. Well, uh, my highest grade is an elephant stamp. It's uh, my log brand that goes on my uh, highest grade pipes. Mm -hmm. uh, for smooth one, I, I never put my highest grade on the blast pipes or semi-blast. Mm -hmm. I, I reserve it solely for the smooth pipes. And why, uh, my, go, why an elephant? Tell me about the elephant and, uh, and the name. Uh, well, that's actually uh, come back to my father-in-law. Uh, his last name in Russian sounds like elephant. And that was his nickname for, his, for all his life. Even I call him this. I mean, I'm his son-in-law and I never call him by name. I always use a nickname. And the tail of the elephant on my stamp said Slow. That's his last name. Okay. I decided to go with that to honor that uh, initial push he gave me to start the whole business. What a push that was too, right? I think yeah, I think we all need to uh, write him a letter and thank him. Uh, probably. <laughs> uh, last year I was trying to bring him to the Chicago show, but he visited us like two weeks later, so he didn't uh, come to the right time. Next time you talk to him, tell him I said thank you very much. <laughs> I will. I will. You're not the first one, actually, to be honest. And uh, my next grade is A+. Which is uh, between A and elephant. So for elephant stamp, I pick only the perfect grains, absolutely clean. Uh, basically, all my grading is about wood. Sometimes it's about shape, but mostly it's about rarity of the wood itself. Uh, next grade is A plus. Then it goes A, B, and C. I also have a like in between grading. If pipe is a little bit better than B. But a uh, little bit not enough till A, it's going to be A, B, and so far. Mm -hmm. So it's like a half grade. And uh, uh, I made only one pipe C grade smooth, which uh, I'm still actually kind of regretted, but uh, a friend of mine who actually ordered that pipe, uh, he asked me to keep it smooth. In other case, I will probably blast it. I'm trying to keep my smooth pipes as high grade as possible, Mm -hmm. Not because of the money, it's, uh, it's my side work anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, that's because of the beauty of the wood. Yeah. You know, that's what I'm trying to show the most. I'm trying to uh, open up the beauty of each and every block I ever touch. Mm -hmm. And in my understanding, blast is another form of art. So sometimes it's better to blast the pipe to bring out all of that uh, natural beauty of the grains this way than just to make a flat, smooth finish. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and my blast pipes, uh, uh, they graded A and B. Basically, A is a little bit better than B. And uh, lately, I have a lot of suggestions from, the, from friends, collectors, and people who just own my pipes uh, to make a, some sort of special grading for my best blast pipes. So that thing is in the progress. I don't know what it's going to be. So I had, I had a few new pipes this year, which is like way outside of my regular blast. 
quality. So it was absolutely perfect. Green grains, like somebody put a ruler to the side, you know. So that's why people suggest me to create some sort of grading for exceptionally good blasts. About how many pipes a year do you make? Uh, around 50 pipes, like one pipe a week or so. And about... Uh, sometimes less, sometimes more. And uh, about how many of those end up being uh, pipes that you would at least partially blast? Uh, probably half. Okay. Uh, it's ju just about my perception of uh, quality of this finish. I usually blast about half, half pipes I made. At least partially, because uh, uh, smallest, if, if there is like a uh, pinhead sand pit, I probably will leave it and uh, downgrade the pipe. Uh, but the problem is with all of those imperfections, it's not only the sand pit there. There is a grain which goes around it, and it's like, you know, ripples on the water. So with the trained eye, even if you don't see the sand pit, you can say it's there. From a pretty much a big distance, uh, that's uh, why I try to... I'm not hiding anything, uh, basically, uh, but uh, my favorite slogan is there is no shame in blast. It's produced very good pipes, it's a very good smokers, uh, plus on top of it, I'm trying to uh, have as wide uh, as wide uh, piece of the market as I possibly can. Well, blast pipes, they're usually twice cheaper than my smooth pipes, so uh, I can get uh, people who have either less income or less interesting, uh, interest in the collectible pipes, but they still can get my pipes yeah. as a smoked instrument. So for me, it's important, because uh, as I mentioned in the beginning of the interview, I was myself in a position when I liked the pipe, but I cannot afford it. Yeah, that's that's me, brother. So uh, keep making those blasts for the for some of us other guys out here. <laughs> well, that, that's a general idea because uh, uh, I just recently realized some of my uh, pipes, which I never made blast before, some of my shapes, uh, I made them uh, blast, and they look absolutely. Uh, I mean, I understand that uh, the beauty of the shape. Uh, projected from absolutely different direction for me. You know, I see it sort of from the other side. And there is two different, uh, I had my blast apple and a smooth apple, uh, one next to another. And it looks like uh, one is beautiful by one thing, but the other pipe is beautiful by absolutely other things. I, I completely agree. I'm a huge fan of blasts, and, and I'm a big fan of various kinds of rustication if it's done right. And I agree. I, th I think that there's a, a lot to be said about blasts as well as uh, different kinds of rustication if they're done well. Yeah, uh, rustication is a very uh, touchy subject. Uh, personally, I'm not trying to do any rustication on my pipes. Uh, by the reason I'm trying to do everything organic, and in my understanding, rustication is sort of a forced finish. So I'm not following anything natural. I'm just creating the a surface which I have in my mind, but it's not in the wood. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I absolutely admire good rustication. And uh, to name a few, uh, Manuel Shaabi, he does uh, excellent work with rustication. Uh, Takeo Arita, Kent Rasmussen, and I can go, again, yeah. with a very long list. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in my understanding, I try to keep everything natural, 
And uh, for me, BLAST is always an option. Because I have a BLAST cabinet right here in my workshop. I don't need to go anywhere so I can BLAST it right here and see the results. You know, that's that's fascinating that um, your, your idea of why uh, and how you're making these pipes... Um, you know, influences what kinds of techniques you will and, and won't use. I find that very interesting, and that's that's a great insight into your work. Very interesting. Well, uh, basically, good rustication takes a lot of time too. Probably same as a good blast, if not more than that. So I don't see anything wrong with that. It just don't fit my personal my personal understanding of the organic. Right, right. Your outlook as far as uh, the organic side of of how you create and what you're trying to show uh, mm-hmm. doesn't quite work with that specific technique. Very interesting. Yeah, but uh, uh, sometimes, you know, like uh, a lot of Japanese makers try to utilize a little bit of uh, rough plateau here or there. Mm-hmm. I absolutely admire that. I made a few pipes like that and I find out it's real hard to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's much easier to do the whole smooth thing yeah. than just to keep a little bit on it. But uh, I'm absolutely nuts about the uh, natural plateau thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's probably a few exceptions, like if you look at the old uh, Ben Wade pipes, when they keep the whole top with a natural plateau. Uh-huh. Well, I used to like it a lot when I started to make pipes, but now I uh, kind of... Uh, I still like it, but it needs some work too. It needs a combination of rough plateau and smooth. So uh, I just try to keep my job as hard as possible. <laughs> I guess because it's real easy to leave the whole top in a you know rough plateau and just uh, say it's done. But uh, I'd like to play with that. Uh, for me, Briar is like a clay for a sculptor, and uh, it's a little bit harder than actual clay, but that's. Uh, that's how I see that material. So it's uh, I, I'm trying to do something which looks like it and then solidified. Well, it's absolutely fascinating, and, and your work is astonishing. What can we expect from you in the future? Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, that's what I want to find out for myself, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know. Uh, I cannot say I was progressing way too fast, but that was like fast, at least for me. And uh, every successful pipe show for me is a huge challenge because I had certain pipes, let's say in 2008, and I'm assuming that people uh, will expect something uh, radical new for 2009. And, uh, you know, it's kind of put me on a hot spot. And, uh, well, I will have some uh, new shapes. Uh, only a few people saw those shapes. Uh, uh, if you've been in the Richmond, you might see one of my new shapes, actually. Uh, I missed the Richmond show myself, but one pipe was on the smokingpipes.com table. And uh, I promised them they will have it before the show, so I mail it. And uh, I knew it was there. It's a shape I call a whale. And the uh, funny thing about that shape, uh, it's only two pipes exist so far. Uh, I, uh, I had a little accident uh, this summer. I broke my right arm and I didn't work for two months. Oh, wow. Uh, well, I draw the pipe at least. 
And right after my cast was off, uh, just to prove myself I can do something, I just made the first whale, uh, which is a pierced pipe with a huge uh, wrap around the shank tail and everything. And uh, I sold the uh, first pipe to a friend of mine. He's a longtime client. And uh, I got a call from him. He asked me how I uh, make uh, briar bendable. He was absolutely sure I carved it as a flat and then I bend it somehow. So that was a very surprised call. Uh, it took me about half an hour to explain to him it was a solid piece and I didn't bend anything on it. Yeah, yeah. I just cut it this way out of the solid piece. So uh, that's going to be a new shape and uh, currently I'm working on uh, sort of the uh, next step of that shape. It's, uh, it's a little bit more elaborate. It's real hard to explain how it looks like. I mean, it's a freehand pipe. Uh, there is no analogs of that pipe yet. At least I, uh, I didn't see anything like that yet. Uh, the idea of it comes from a few different sources. Basically, it's, uh, uh, let's put it this way, Toku, Teddy, and, uh, and uh, uh, Kei Goto in uh, one while. Wow. Something like that. So I'm just, uh, you know, trying to uh, use the plastics and the aesthetics of uh, lines I like. You know, I never right. copy anybody's, but sometimes I see a line which I absolutely like, and I try to incorporate that single line in some crazy designs of mine. So it's really actually hard to see from from where that line has come. Uh, but uh, I always open. If somebody asks, I just point exactly from where it comes. Because uh, in a pipe world, uh, uh, I cannot say that somebody's copying somebody's, but we always, you know, uh, in a collaboration. All the pipe makers look at the other pipes and they see something what they like and they utilize it in their creations. Yeah. But yeah. it's not a straightforward copying. Right. And I, I think that happens uh, in all art forms. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think so. I think it's a normal evolution of any art form. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a na natural evolution of things. And uh, for modern pipes, as we see them right now, I think the big thank you goes to Sixton Everson, who actually opened that Pandora box for everybody. Yeah. And uh, uh, that family is actually incredible. Uh, you can take any pipe and you can find the influence of Lars or Sixton or Nana in it. Literally any pipe, freehand or classic, doesn't matter. So uh, basically Lars already did everything. We're just following the leader, you know? <laughs> Indeed. So, uh, and uh, it's like, uh, for example, if you take uh, Bunord uh, uh, Ramses, uh -huh. which in my eyes is the most genius design ever. But how many variations of that pipe we can find? Of that uh, shape, I mean, uh, there was a Ramses made by Kent Rasmussen, which I absolutely adore. He, like, absolutely changed the whole view of the... Uh, of the shape, of the view for the shape, you know. Mm -hmm. Instead of going uh, moderate height to width, he shoot it upwards all the way. Uh, to opposite to it, uh, Tom L. Tank Ramses, which he showed at the uh, 2008 uh, Chicago show made out of Bonard Breyer, as a matter of fact, it sort of goes side by side. And it's absolutely different idea of the same shape. It's incredible. Uh, my last Ramses was a Cavalier drilling. It had a Cavalier engineering inside. Really? Yep. 
uh, I had it at 2008 on my table. Uh, that was almost 200 gram of pipe. As a matter of fact, that was a huge piece of block. And when I open it, uh, you know, start to shape on it, that was a shame to make it smaller. The briar was so good, it was uh, literally crime to waste it. So I came out idea with a Cavalier drilling, and I saved uh, practically all of the block and a bent on the pipe is. Uh, well, when people see it for the first time, they don't know it's a Cavalier. They ask me how I drill it, because it looks like it's impossible to drill. And that's another thing I like to do, you know, to make pipe look like it's impossible to drill. I just, I just like the look at the faces of the people when they pass the cleaner and it came out of the bowl. <laughs> you know, it, it's just a personal satisfaction. I'm not trying to mock anybody, but, you know, it's a personal satisfaction. Well, send me a if you got a picture of the Cavalier, or um, any picture that you want, but um, one of those would be great, and I'll I'll put it up or a picture of you up, um, you know, on the site when we're ready to uh, put up a podcast. Well, uh, I will mail you uh, the pictures of uh, Cavalier. Definitely, actually, I made a, f- a few Cavalier-like pipes. Uh, you you probably saw one of them on the SmokingPipes.com a few weeks ago. I think it's still there, as a matter of fact. Uh, as a I'll, I'll have to check that out. It's called a fused blowfish cavalier. And there is an interesting story behind that pipe. Okay. Tell, uh, tell me about the... Uh, it's, and you said it's the fused blowfish cavalier? Yep. Tell me about that. Uh, uh, a long time ago, when I just started to carve pipes, uh, Rex Pogenpol offered me to talk to Tom Eltink to get me some blocks. I was in search for good blocks, and Mimo have a minimum order, and at that time I cannot meet it. So I was trying to get the better blocks uh, in different sources. And uh, Rex uh, visited uh, Tom in Denmark in a few months after that talk, and he bring me 10 blocks from him. And I used most of those blocks except one. Uh, I put it aside because it's so odd-shaped block, but I see on one side the beautiful bird's eyes. That's all I can saw on that block. So I put it aside and almost forget about it. And it was on my shelves uh, since 2005. Three years later, before the Chicago show last year, actually it's still this year, uh, I find that block, and uh, I was uh, rotate that block in my hands for about two hours just to look at it and trying to figure out what's inside of it. And uh, in about uh, 20 minutes after I uh, surface all the sides, you know, on the disc sander just to see what kind of wood inside, I took a pencil and I draw that pipe on the side of it, and uh, by the end of the day I had a rough shaping. Okay. So that's how that pipe was born. Wow. Uh, that, that, that briar I got from Tom Elting about uh, three and a half years ago. <laughs> and at the show, actually, I showed that pipe to Tom, and uh, ask him uh, if he recognized the briar. And he was thinking for a while, and like, no. Uh, and I remind him, remember a long time ago, Rex Pogenpol was buying some blocks for me, and that's one of those blocks. I got that block from you. And, like, and I sold you that block. <laughs> that's great. Oh, well, you, you can see the grains on that pipe. So that's uh, absolutely gorgeous uh, cross-cut block, uh, probably one of the most beautiful I ever worked with. 
And I had it for three years and not realizing I have that block. So, well, everything happened for a good. Maybe like three years ago, I will do some uh, simple uh, uh, primitive pipe out of it and probably smoke it myself. But uh, now I made something which is actually worth to put on the shelf and just look at it. Yeah, yeah. I, ho- I hope, sincerely hope it's been smoked. Because I always hope uh, the pipe I made will be smoked because uh, every pipe I make intended to be smoked. Well, as much as you put into that engineering, yeah, I would say Well, so. they, they all pass the cleaner. They all have a wide open drawer and the mouse pieces uh, worked out. But basically, I do everything possible to create a good smoker in the first place. For me, engineering is a 75% of the pipe. Because I can do anything on the outside, but if I screwed up the inside, it's going to be a bad pipe. In my understanding, at least. You know, when I work on my pipe, uh, as an individual, first of all, I put my name on the line in this case. Uh, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing for me, I'm making somebody's life companion. Yeah, absolutely. So it's got to be good. Absolutely. Anybody who smoke my pipe... Uh, and don't like it, I always do a follow-up call, so actually not only one, I usually call uh, to my clients uh, when they receive the pipe, so I'm like, you know, relaxed, they got the pipe, and uh, without any breaks on it and scratches, I always pack real well, but you never know what can happen to the mailing, and uh, later on, I always call to find out how well it smokes, and if there is any problems, because I give... uh, it, uh, I give one year uh, warranty, you know, on a craftsmanship because sometimes there is a hidden stone somewhere in the briar. I cannot see it. I'm not an x-ray machine. And uh, if, uh, God forbid, it happens to one of my pipes, it's going to be burned through. Yeah. Literally, it's going to explode. Yeah. So I got to replace it because, yeah. uh, you know, I just feel bad if I do a bad pipe. Because um. for me, quality is... Uh, the most important thing. Let me ask you about uh, pipes that you smoke uh, personally, and I'm guessing these are ones that you've made yourself. Do you smoke any others? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I do smoke a lot of Peter Hitchin pipes by a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, we're friends, and uh, his pipes, they're friendly from a very first touch. You know, you take any of his pipes in your hand and it feels friendly. Uh-huh. And it's incredible smokers, too. They smoke well from a very first puff. And uh, I have a few pipes I bought from him, and one pipe is uh, very, very dear to me. Uh, uh, That was my very first Chicago Pipe Show. I I met Peter for the first time, and uh, we've been in the bar, you know, talking about pipes, and I was asking some questions how to do this, how to do that. And I uh, compliment his pipe. That was his uh, five-knuckle bamboo ketty. He called it ketty, actually. It's uh, his own shape, you know, Peter shape. Uh-huh. And uh, he just asked me, do you really like this pipe? And I'm like, yeah. And he just showered it to my mouth. Tell me it's mine. So that's, uh, that pipe is uh, probably the most precious I have. You know, for me, it's a very, very precious pipe. Yeah. Uh, I also smoke uh, Danny Nielsen. I got one of his uh, Viking graded pipe, and uh, uh, I never saw anything like that uh, in his line before or after I bought that pipe. 
The shape is absolutely interesting. It's a triangular ball with uh, some idea of blowfish, I guess. It's a cross-cut pipe. Uh-huh. It's a wonderful English smoker. It's uh, basically smoke itself. And uh, uh, I love this pipe a lot. And uh, uh, Tony tell me he is very happy that uh, I am in particular got that pipe. Uh, and a matter of fact, it was my birthday present and my wife actually picked it up. <laughs> From That's his great. table at the show. That's great. Because my birthday is very close to the show, so for me it's uh, my shopping ground for my birthday present. That's, hey, that sounds good to me. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a lucky person, you know. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, you're, so especially, reason, uh, especially because your wife buys you pipes, which mine does too, so I'm lucky too. But um, yeah, that's that, there's a lot to be said for that. Let me ask you well, something. I was in the... Um, uh, pipe making seminar at the uh, Chicago show last year. And when you came through um, helping us all out with various things, I noticed you were smoking a, uh, a very thin, long, uh, small, dainty, wonderful looking little pipe. And as a matter of fact, um, I, if I could be wrong, but I, I think that I saw you smoking fairly small pipes with long stems or a combination of long stem, long shank. Um, uh, most of the time in Chicago. Uh, tell me about that. Tell me about, um, is that some kind of a, a, a shape or a combination that you lean towards smoking? Uh, well, uh, that's actually a very interesting question. Uh, we discussed it a lot on the Russian Smokers Forum. We came out with uh, something which we call the evolution of pipe smoker. Uh, most of the pipe smokers who just joined the hobby uh, they start with uh, half-band, full-band pipes, you know, like the image of Sherlock Holmes. Uh-huh. And uh, they start to smoke with some heavily aromatic tobaccos because it smells good. So they have no idea of the taste yet, you know, they're just learning. And uh, basically, I come back to the pipe smoke in exactly the same way. My first pipe uh, I ever made was a half-band, and actually I still smoke it. It smokes well, not the best smoker I have. It's, so it's still in my rotation, uh, but uh, as soon as you start to learn about different tobaccos, about different shapes of pipes, uh, most of the pipe smokers start to move toward the straighter pipes, like one eight band, maybe one quarter band, but not more than that, and uh, longer shanks. At least that's worked for me, and I make a lot of long shanks myself, and the uh, uh, briar is working like a sponge. It absorbs all the extra moisture which created in the, inside the bowl. So basically, the longer you shank, uh, the drier you smoke. But there is also a sort of uh, underwater stone to it. If you have a long shank, you've got to always control the temperature inside the bowl. Because you might not realize you smoke hot, but you still get a cold, cold, cold smoke. Right. So that's uh, one thing you got to watch out for that. Uh, plus, I'm absolutely fell in love with uh, bamboo extension pipes. They smoke absolutely dry and wonderful by the same reason. Bamboo is like a sponge. Mm-hmm. Absorbs all the stuff which not supposed to reach your mouth. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, the reason why I smoke smaller pipes, uh, I like to change my tobaccos. It's, yeah. uh, for me, tobacco is like a wine for the dinner. 
Right. Uh, right. So, and I'm also a food gourmet as well, so I might change a few wines during the dinner as well. Right. So, uh, I'm changing tobacco about five times a day. So, I need five smaller pipes instead of one big one. And uh, the pipe you saw me with, uh, was it uh, Black Blast? Yep, sure was. So, that was uh, my pencil shank Dublin then. Uh, that's my one of the, uh, I made this pipe myself, it's one of mine, and uh, that's probably the most beautiful English smoker I have for everyday smoking. Because I mentioned Tanya Nielsen, uh, that's a pipe reserved solely for one tobacco only, it's reserved for Bohemian Scandal. And I just cannot afford to smoke it every day. The tobacco itself is damn expensive. So I don't have that much of stash either. So I always open a small tin for the Chicago show, and, uh, well, everybody's uh, welcome to try it. And, uh, well, as long as I have it. Yeah. And uh, that Tony Nielsen pipe reserved for that tobacco only. Uh, basically, I have a few English, smoke, uh, English pipes. Uh, I, I always uh, put aside pipes by tobaccos, you know, like English pipes, uh, Virginia pipes, Virginia Perique, uh, Virginia Orientals. I might uh, mix some Virginias inside the pipes, but I never smoke, uh, for example, Virginia from pipes which I smoke English from, okay. because it's uh, it's absolutely screwing up the taste. So uh, I have only a few uh, English pipes because I smoke mostly Virginias, and okay. I don't smoke aromatics at all. Speaking of my uh, smoking habits, I just okay. you know grew up out of it, right. sort of. That's yeah. what I call it. Uh, uh, speaking of another pipes uh, from another makers, I do have a pipe made by Sixton Iverson. It's a 1964 uh, acorn with a bamboo. And uh, the reason why I bought it, there's a few reasons, but main reason was he started it all yeah. for basically all of us. And I just uh, felt it's a sentimental reason. I just got to have one. Yeah. At least one. Uh, now, now I'm trying to track another shape I absolutely adore by Sixton Iverson, but it turns out much harder to get than the one I already have. <laughs> so that's... Uh, and there is a few uh, pipe makers I have in mind whose pipes I want to smoke. And uh, basically for me, uh, the experience of smoking somebody else's pipe, it's uh, a lot of sentimental reasons. Yeah. Uh, because I knew personally most of the pipe makers uh, in the world since they all come to Chicago. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, when I smoke, for example, Peter Hishan pipe, uh, I always remember Peter, you know, he's like standing before me. You know, I, I have even mental conversations with him when I smoke his pipes. It's much more than just consuming the tobacco. It's all emotional experiences as well. It's a great thing, so, isn't it? Yeah, I also have pipes from Kirk Bossi. Uh, he is a member of Chicago Pipe Club, and uh, uh, there was a time when uh, he taught me a lot as well, when I just started to make pipes, and uh, uh, we trade pipes to each other, you know. I don't buy pipes from him, I just give him one of mine, he, and he gave me one of his, you know. It's, uh, yeah. it's more like a friendly exchange, and again, it's uh, a lot of emotions involved when I smoke those pipes. Yeah, Kirk's a great guy, too. Oh, he's absolutely great guy, yes. Uh, there is another guy uh, who is not very well known as a pipe maker, but he's a very well known as a temper maker, Larry Faulkner. Yeah, Larry's a super nice guy too. 
Absolutely. And uh, I don't know if you know that, that Larry makes pipes once in a while. Well, he makes pipes in my workshop. Uh, he lives pretty much close by my house, and uh, he stopped by once in a while. And when he stopped and by, he's making pipes. So I smoke few of his pipes, and actually, it's a very wonderful smokers. That's great. Like a uh, few of his pipes, actually, I smoke almost every day. Okay. They're always in my pipe bag or in my car or at my work. That's great. That's great. So that's, uh, for me, smoking somebody else's pipe, it's, uh, you know, it's a more emotional and sentimental thing than, yeah. you know, I can make myself any kind of shape I like, but it wouldn't be the same. So the experience will be the difference, and uh, the experience and the feelings, that's what I'm uh, looking for. So it's, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I don't think it's a big surprise to anybody that uh, pipe makers trade each other pipes a lot. As I find out, you know, like uh, Tukutomi smokes a lot of L-Tank pipes. Oh, really? And L-Tank have uh, a lot of Tukutomi pipes, you know. Very interesting. Or uh, the, the last year there was a beautiful pipes made by a few pipe makers at the same time, like uh, uh, Tom L-Tank made a pipe with the Goto. They were sending the rough pieces to each other, and sort of finishing it here and there, so the pipe well, one pipe was made by two pipe makers. So that's another interesting thing I probably that's, will try to get involved into, you know. That's great, that's great, I love that Sort of col collaboration things. So it's, uh, I mean, a lot of people think if uh, I'm a pipe maker, I'm supposed to smoke only my pipes. Well, uh, maybe there is some truth in it, I just don't feel it this way. You know, I, I smoke pipes I like, and uh, since I have friends who also make pipes, I, I'd be more than willing to smoke their pipes. Yeah, I, I think uh, your approach to it, is, it makes a lot of sense, though, especially because you've got that uh, emotional connection with these folks. It makes a lot of sense to uh, to bring that into into play there. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it's uh, the whole experience, that's what counts. So it's, uh, you know, I'm not that uh, arrogant to limit myself only to my own pipes. <laughs> and uh, in, another thing is, uh, usually I smoke my own pipes, which I reject, you know, which I sort of cannot put on the market by that reason or another. Yeah. So and uh, it didn't happen often as well. So I, I have about a dozen of my pipes uh, and... Uh, Probably only two or three out of the dozen is my late pipes. Most of them my very first pipes, so I don't even show it to the people. Really? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, if there's something to show, I will, but since uh, there is nothing to show, why would I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, one of those things. Yeah. And, uh, well, uh, sometimes, actually, you know, it's... Uh, right on the spot like that uh, long chain Dublin uh -huh. uh, I, I never look at it as something you know exceptional you know it was just uh, one of the rejects from the commission pipe uh, a friend of mine sent me a little sketch and asked me if I can make a pipe like that uh, so I made the first one there was a sand pit on the front which I don't like and I put that uh, piece of wood aside I made a new one with no sand pits on it, I blast it, I send it to that friend, and uh, that rejected pipe was on my table without mouthpiece for about half a year. 
And uh, the mouthpiece come actually from another pipe, uh, which uh, I didn't like that length of the mouthpiece on it, <laughs> so I reject the mouthpiece from the other pipe. It's Isn't supposed to be a bamboo pipe. So I put it to that uh, unfinished Dublin, and that's uh, how it's received that fairly long mouthpiece, which a lot of people actually like. Oh, I love most it. Of the pencil, most of the pencil shanks, they have uh, short saddle mouthpieces. And this one is quite opposite. It has a very long uh, tapered mouthpiece. And yeah. it smokes absolutely wonderful. And, uh, you know, walking around the pipe show with that pipe in my mouth, it's actually giving me a few commissions. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's, it's just a beautiful looking piece. And I, I, I'd like for you to send me a picture of it, if you don't mind. Uh, well, I, I, got, I got to make a picture of it to start with. I never made a picture of it. Yeah, if you could, that'd be great. Because I have a picture of it in my mind from the show. Uh, but if you could send me a picture, I'd, I'd just love to have it. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you tonight. Thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate uh, you taking Thank the you time. so much, and thanks for what you're doing. I mean, uh, you're doing a very good job to promote the hobby. So for me, it's uh, very important, too. Absolutely. Because, thank, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. We're trying to keep it up from, uh, you know, different sides. So you as the collector, me as the maker, but basically we do the same thing. And it's, uh, it's, it's just such a great hobby, and there's so many good people, and there's so many great connections that we make uh, when we hang out at the shows, and when we make these connections like we are now, and when we're uh, able to bring out... Uh, your words to all these different folks. It's just a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, I'll be absolutely honored, you know, because uh, I just uh, like the whole pipe smoking community. For me, it's uh, uh, the best crowd I fit in. You yeah. know, I feel myself in it uh, like a fish in the water. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Alex. I really appreciate it. And that was a chat I had with the very cordial, very talented Alex Florov. If you've never seen his work, check out florovpipes.com. That's F-L-O-R-O-V pipes.com right now and see what this guy's work is all about. This podcast was made possible by Pipe Stud's Consignment Pipe Shop. Check out pipestud.com for hard-to-find tobacco. This is great vintage stuff that is no longer in production. Also, check out his pipes at his eBay store. Go to Pipe Studs Consignment Pipe Shop on the links page at oompal.com, and you will always find a great selection of estate pipes. Thanks for listening. I'm Oli for oompal.com, wishing you very good luck trying to decide which Alex Florov pipe will be next in your collection.